0: Good evening, I feel kind of like a professor tonight, I didn't really even care for school that much, it's an honor and a delight to be with you tonight, I've got to get my book situated, uh, a warning before we jump into our Bible study. My name is Justin McNeilis, if we haven't met, and I am a banker. What am I? A banker. I've never been trained as far as how to eloquently put together a sermon or, or how to get your theological points just right, but I'm a young person, and I'm living proof that God can work through young people. I thought as I was preparing for my sermon, I've got to get really deep or they, or they might think that I'm an imposter. I thought maybe if I I memorized a few pages from the dictionary, I might be able to sound like David Ashrick. But I realized very quickly that we have a power-packed weekend of speakers. You'll get plenty of theological sermons. Tonight you'll get a simple message from a banker with an appeal anyone can understand. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me one more time. Heavenly Father, Lord, many prayers have been prayed for tonight, and I add one more. I don't do it as a formality or or, or something you do every time before you speak, but I do it because I believe there's a living God that gives us power. I ask now that you take away all distractions in this room. May angels fill the seats in between us. May the devil be far away from here. I ask that you speak through me tonight in a powerful way, in a way that you've never done before. Not so that people can walk from here and say, Justin gave us a good sermon, but so they can walk from here and say, they heard Jesus. It's my sincere and humble prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. In my devotions, I've been studying the life of David a little bit. David has always intrigued me as a Bible character. He, he was Chose as a young person, even though humanly it seemed like he was the wrong choice. You'll remember that Samuel was getting ready to select the next king of Israel. Samuel was loading up the donkeys. He sent word to Jesse and he said, Jesse, get your sons ready. I'm going to pick the next king. Jesse looks at his sons, sizes them up from a human mind, and says, David, go herd the sheep because one of your Sons, excuse me, one of your brothers is going to be picked as the next king of Israel. David goes off to herd sheep. Samuel comes down, looks at the would-be choices from Jesse and says, not here. Do you have another son? Jesse summons in David from the herd and, and he's anointed the next king of Israel. David is the story of an underdog, humanly, from a human perspective, not adequate to be chosen by God. Few churches across the globe haven't heard an elegant children's story of David slaying Goliath. It's one that most young men can, can recall, but my intentions were different. My intentions were this, twofold. The first, if David was alive today, what message would he have for me? What message would he have for the president of the generation of youth for Christ? If David was alive today, motive two, what message would he preach to us tonight on opening night if we could ask him? And I think I found my answer. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2nd. I think it's 2nd. We might find out it's 1st. 2nd Chronicles I trust you have your Bible tonight. If this is your first time to GYC, I would consider it very unwise to enter a meeting without your Bible. It will be our primary textbook all weekend. If you're joining us via the Great Ministry of 3ABN, I urge you get up and secure a Bible beside your seat. 1st Chronicles 28 and verse 1. Did I say 2nd Chronicles? Turn with me to 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 1. When you get there, say amen. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 1. David assembled all, how many? All the princes of Israel, the princes of the tribes, the captains of the companies that ministered to the king by courses, and the captains over the thousands, the captains over a hundred, the stewards over all the substances and possessions of the king, and those of sons with the officers and with the mighty men and with all the valiant men unto Jerusalem. So David sends out word. He says, come to this glorious event. The whole Israelites are invited. Clearly, David was going to give an important message. He invites them, come. We'll learn in just a little bit that David was setting up the success of his successors. David was getting this next generation to be this next generation to, to, that would have the talent and the capacity to do things that David himself could not do. David was getting ready to bring in David's kingdom 2.0. First Chronicles 28. We we'll read in the in the, the second verse. Then David the king stood upon his feet and said, "Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me, I had it in my heart to build a house of rest." for the ark of covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God, and had made ready for the building. David said to all that were gathered, I had it in my heart to build the house. I planned for it. I prepared for it. I prayed for it. I felt you would even say it was my purpose to build the house. We read in verse 3, God said unto him, Thou shalt not, thou what? Thou shalt not build the house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war and hast shed blood. David said to all that were gathered, it was my purpose to build this house. But God said, no, David, it's not your purpose. You'll wait. The next generation will do it. Read with me in verse 6. David goes on to say in the next couple verses that he was chosen by God. He did incredible things through God, but it just was not his purpose to build the house. 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 6, it said, He said unto me, Solomon thy son, he shall build my house in my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. David says to all those who were gathered, I planned, I prepared, It was my intention and my purpose and my focus to build the house. But God came to me and said no, and, and now he's telling Solomon, this is your purpose, to build the house. Friends, I believe if David was able to speak tonight, it would be much along these lines. The setting is very much the same. Many, many people are gathered. Many people are represented here tonight. Generations are within this place. Many countries, they're distracting me. That's part of my message too. Many countries are represented here tonight. Young people are represented, old people are represented, and from the pages of the Bible, an ancient king makes an appeal to us tonight. First Chronicles 28 and verse 6. He said unto me, Solomon, thy son, he shall build my house, for I have chosen him. Young people, generations before us, they were selected by God. God said to David, you won't finish the work, and God in his infinite wisdom has given us a purpose. I want to go out on a limb and tell us that purpose is to be the generation that actually finishes the work. Generations before us, they have tried, they have planned for it, they have prayed for it, they have sincerely and humbly thought it would be their generation, but God in his infinite mercy and love said, you're not the generation. God tonight through David, I believe, is saying that we are the generation that's going to finish the work. We are the generation that's gonna actually do it. God has given us the capacity and talent to do things that they have not been able to do in the, few, in the past. Think of the potency of that message. God tells us to go in, in Matthew 28. You're with me, yes or no? He, you will believe that that was not just for, for pastors or, or church uh, leaders, correct? So that includes everyone that reads that message, God calls them to go, Matthew 28. Then if you believe that, you will believe also that when Paul says that he was chosen for the purpose to be a servant, to be a witness of things that, he had, he, things that God had done in his life. You're with me, yes or no? He calls you to go. He calls you for this purpose, to be a servant. And if you believe that, you believe that during that time, you are fulfilling Matthew 24 when he says, go to all the earth and tell everyone that I'm coming soon. God gives us this purpose. Think of this for a moment. Generations before us, they were unsuccessful. Generations before us weren't enough. Founders of the Seventh day Adventist Church weren't enough. Heroes that you read about in the Bible weren't enough. Missionaries that you read about far off in another place weren't enough. Pioneers of the church weren't enough. Modern day evangelists aren't enough. Doug Batchelor, Sean Boonstra, Mark Finley, Justin Kim. You can put any name you want there except for your own and it's not enough. God needs you. God needs you. And he needs you today. God is calling for an army that takes this purpose seriously and finishes the work. God reaches out tonight with an appeal, an appeal to join an army, an army of young people rightly trained to minister to the world in need. God needs you, and he needs you today. Education, page 262. The heaven-appointed purpose of giving the gospel to the world in this generation is the noblest that can appeal to any human being. The heaven-appointed purpose of giving the gospel to the world in this generation is the noblest that can appeal to any human being. Generations before us were unsuccessful generations before us they planned for it they prepared for it they prayed for it but were unsuccessful now it's not to say that that generations before us were failures not in the least God did incredible things through them but he said to them just he said to them thou shalt not build the house and in our case, he said, thou shalt not finish the work, but he's calling for a generation that could finish the house, and he's calling tonight for a generation that can finish the work. Are you with me? Yes or no? First Chronicles 28 and verse 10. David has just laid down this colossal purpose for Solomon. He said, I planned for it, I prepared for it, but I was not the one to finish the work. He says, Solomon, God chose you to do it. He says tonight, God calls us tonight. He says, you are the generation that's going to finish the work. And then in verse 10, we read David's strong appeal. Take heed now, for the Lord hath chosen thee to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Be strong and do it. In verse 20, the next few chapters, David goes on to to kind of prop Solomon up, up, to get him ready, to to give him the instructions on how it's going to be done. In verse 20, he appeals to him again. Verse 20 says, David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and of good courage and do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee until thou hast finished all the work what an appeal tonight he calls to us to be that generation that finishes the work and then he says i will be with you i will not forsake you until all the work is finished it's interesting to me solomon's reaction to this we don't know too much about solomon at this time we know that he was a young person at this calling we know that he wasn't necessarily publicly uh, wrestling for the throne. So I kind of picture Solomon as a, a timid person, much more reserved and timid than his father. I, I picture him as kind of being this skinny, maybe not skinny, call him midweight person, kind of in the backgrounds as his father's giving this appeal. And Solomon is charged with this purpose and he says, how can I do it? Lord, I, I know that you've, you've called me to this purpose, but I am weak. Lord, I understand that you need me, but I feel inadequate. And we find Solomon wrestling with these same questions in 1 Kings. Perhaps tonight you feel kind of like Solomon. You say, God, I know that you've chosen me. I know that you've selected this generation to be the generation that actually does it, that actually finishes the work, but you can't use me yet. Lord, when I'm a mission college graduate, then you can use me. When I'm an rise Souls, you name it, whatever it is, then you can use me. God, when I'm, I'm 20, 30, 40, 80, then you can use me. Lord, the purpose is big and I am weak Lord how on earth could I do anything to advance the gospel Solomon's wrestling with these same questions we see it in 1 Kings chapter 2 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 2 it says I go the way of all the earth be thou strong therefore and show thyself a man I didn't give you too much time to get there did I (laughs) gotta be quick 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 2, David says, Solomon, soon I'm going to die, but I want you to be successful. David's setting up the success of his successors. He says, soon, Solomon, I'm going to die, but I want you to be successful. See, I kind of picture them in this this stone hallway. All the the elders and the important people have gone home, and Solomon's just there alone with his father reflecting on how he's going to do it. He's just been charged with this colossal purpose. He feels completely inadequate. And the spirit of prophecy tells us that he felt he was too young to do it. Verse 3, David says, Keep the charge of the Lord thy God. Walk in his ways. Keep his statute, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. David just loads him right up. Keep the charge. Walk in his way. Keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgment, his testimonies. But then he goes on in verse 5 and he gives Solomon a warning. I want to study verse 5 with you a little bit tonight. 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 5. It's interesting to me the choice David has here. No doubt David had an arsenal of, of events and stories and incidents in his, in his life to, to recall to Solomon. No doubt this, this great king, this slayer of giant, could have said anything to him, but he chooses three stories. First Kings chapter 2 and verse 5, moreover thou knowest also Joab, the son of who? That's what lay preachers can do when they don't know how to pronounce it. Moreover thou knowest also what Joab did to me, what he did to the two captains of the host, Abner the son of Ner, and unto Amasa the son of Jether. Solomon tells his son, remember what Joab did to me, what he did to Amasa, and what he did to Abner. Clearly, this was important to David because he says, remember, he's already translated this message to Solomon before, but he says there on his deathbed, there as he's trying to make Solomon successful, he says, remember what Joab did to me, what he did to Amasa, and what he did to Abner. Friends, tonight I'll make an easy assumption. If we have a purpose by God to finish the work, this message is important to us. If it was important that long ago for David to tell Solomon so that he could complete the temple, it's just as important to us tonight so that we can finish the work. Are you with me, yes or no? Joab, what he did to me, what he did to Amasa, and what he did to Abner. Turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 20 and verse 9. It's interesting to me how Amasa was killed. All these stories are somewhat graphic and gruesome in the interest of time. We won't go into them in, in that great of detail, but I want to pull out a few points for us tonight. First Samuel 20 and verse 9, are you there, yes or no? That's not right. Try Second Samuel. I forewarned you before we got started. 2 Samuel 20 and verse 9. That looks better. Joab said to Amasa, Art thou in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa didn't expect foul play at all. He came to Joab. He said, How are you doing, my friend? Can I kiss you on the cheek? With the other hand reaching for a sword to extinguish his life. It's interesting to me that he was deceived with a kiss who else in the bible was deceived with a kiss matthew 26 and verse 43 it says now he that betrayeth him gave them a sign saying whosoever i shall kiss that same as he hold him fast judas betrayed jesus with a kiss my wife said something interesting to me whenever we think of judas we think of him as as kind of the bad guy You don't hear many new parents introduce their new baby boy as little baby Judas. If if your name is Judas or you know a Judas, I believe you can be your own person. But the name comes with a lot of negative connotation. Are you with me? When we look at Judas, when we look at Amasa's life, there was no suspicion. I don't know if that's a word. There was no belief that there was foul play. Here's the practical application. The enemy is going to use people, probably people that you respect, to derail you from your purpose. Never, never has there been a more important time for us to be students of the Bible. Never has there been a more important time for us to spend time on our knees praying that God shows us the purpose. Could be a parent that says, don't follow the ministry. Could be a youth pastor. Says, wait till you're a little older till you get involved in God's work. Could be a peer. Says, it's not really cool to work for God yet. Wait till you're a little older. The message from Emesa tells us to be students of the Bible. Justin, are you saying that that God can't use people, uh, peers, parents, or or youth pastors to 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 guide us and aid us in the purpose? Not at all. If God is using someone, God will use many people in your life to elevate you, to to carry you, to hold you, to aid you in your purpose, what I am saying is always keep your eyes on God. The second you lower them, you're looking at a human who at best, their cords are sinful failures. The enemy will use people, probably people you respect in the last day to derail you from your purpose. David said to his son, remember Amasa. It's a message that should drive us to our knees. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 3. I believe as we study the story of Amasa, it tells us that God is calling for a generation devoted to following him What no matter what others are saying about it, a generation so bathed in Bible study and prayer that communication between them and their heavenly Father is never broken, not even by a friendly encounter. King David finds his son, he says, "Remember Amasa, remember Abner." Second Samuel chapter three and verse one. Now there was a long war between the house of the Saul. Excuse me, the house of Saul and the house of David. But David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. But then we read in verse 6, It came to pass while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. The Israelites are at war. The north and the south are fighting with each other. Innocent lives are being snubbed out because the Israelites can't get along. David, this big picture thinker, this great ruler of Israel, says enough is enough. Enough young, excuse me, enough people have died, enough innocent people have died. So he sends message to Abner, he says, come to my home, I want to meet with you. We pick up the story in verse 20. Abner came to David, to Hebron, and and 20 men with him. And David made Abner and the men there... A feast. David brings 20, brings Abner in, brings 20 of his men and says, Come with me, let's get this thing figured out. Enough innocent people have died, we've got to get it figured out. We read of their strategic dinner in verse 21. Abner said unto David, I will arise and go, and will gather all of Israel unto my Lord the King, that they may make a legion with thee. So they have this dinner. David says, enough is enough. Enough innocent people have died. How can the north and the south get along? And Joab says, I'll, okay, king. Or, not Joab. Abner says, okay, king, I'll go back and I'll get the north on your side. Could you argue that Abner did this only for political clout in the cabinet of David? Maybe. Could you argue that David did this only to get his true love back, Michael? Maybe. But I believe David was a bigger picture thinker. I believe that God knew, excuse me, David knew that the Israelites were hand-selected, hand-picked by God, and they needed to get along. And then there was Joab. Joab comes back, and he's enraged with the king. He says, King, how could you have Abner in your own home and not kill him? Don't you know, King, that Abner stands for everything that we're not? Don't you know, King, that Abner's talking bad about us on the other side? Don't you know, King, that that Abner is a spy? So Joab calls Abner back. Abner comes back, and, and Joab is there at the gate with a sword in hand and snubs out Abner's life. I want to draw a practical application, but I want to give you a parenthesis first. You didn't get a president that holds back his opinion. You can ask the executive committee, the board. Rarely do you not know where I stand on an issue. You didn't get, also get a, a, a president that only preaches a raw, raw, go team, go sermon. A a friend and, and nice man once said to me, run your ministry like Jesus. He had the Pharisees on one side and the Sadducees on the other. Close parentheses. How many innocent people will die not knowing Christ because modern day Israelites can't get along? How many people will we neglect in this world because we can't act as one united tribe under God? How many people in your country, in your state, in your city, or on your street will die not knowing a Savior because conservatives and liberals can't get along? I would say this is somewhat of a conservative crowd I'm speaking to. Nothing wrong with that. I I, I don't even like the idea of calling things conservative or or liberal or, or somewhere in the middle. You should be biblical. Your only focus should be if you're biblical or not. It shouldn't matter anywhere else. But for the sake of this, I'll use that analogy because that's what people understand. modern day israelites and i've seen it on both sides say hey look what this other church is doing look what this other pastor is doing and it stews inside of us we create dissension in our ranks we forget that our primary focus is to reach souls for the kingdom. We let the battle between the north and the south consume us. Men and women are lost on the spiritual battlefield daily because we cannot get along. The battle of the north and the south distracts us from our purpose. You say, oh, God likes me a little better because I'm a liberal or, or I'm a conservative. God thinks I'm a, I'm a better person for that. I want to read to you Acts. Acts 10 and verse 34, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version because I like the way it renders it. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no, how much? No partiality. It doesn't matter if you're the president of the Seventh-day Adventist Church or an intern, God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter if you're a young person or an old person, God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter if you're the president of GYC or a first-time attendee, God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter if you're a liberal or a conservative. God shows no partiality. You say, Justin, I I feel just a little holier if I'm a conservative. I I, I feel a little better and I I don't think I can associate with the other side because I'm a little holier because I'm a liberal. Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 and verse 5. Who say, keep to yourself." Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostril, a fire that burns all day. God is calling for a generation, a generation who will say we will stop focusing on the battle of the north and the south and focus on the outside battle, a generation that says the stakes are too high, the risks are too great, and the purpose too magnificent, We must stop the focus of the north and the south. I ask you, how many are you willing to let die in sin in your neighborhood because of the battle? God is calling for a generation who treats the other side, whichever you might be on, like David and not like Joab. Joab, excuse me, David comes to Solomon. He says, remember what Joab did to me Remember what he did to Amasa, and remember what he did to Abner. 2 Samuel, and verse 14. Chapter 14. 2 Samuel, chapter 14, and verse 2. Are you there, yes or no? And Joab sent to... Are you with me, anyone? Joab sent to you got it, and fetch thence a wise woman, and send unto her, I pray thee, find thyself to be a mourner, and put on now mourning apparel, and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that has been a long-time mourner of the, the dead. Joab, in his mind, wants to see Absalom come back to the kingdom. I, I, I think in my mind that if Joab had just asked David straight up, David, can Absalom come back? David would have said, absolutely not. So Joab in his cunning mind constructs a plan to bring Joab, Absalom back. He gets this woman, he, he, he puts a plan in her mouth, he, he pr- plants a story there, and the woman goes to David and says, King, my two sons were in a field. They were fighting and one killed the other. And now, O oh, king, the, the family wants to kill my other son. And, O oh, king, if they do that, my name will vanish forever. O oh, king, if they do that, I'll have nothing left. King, won't you have some pity on me? So David said, Not a hair, I think, on, on his body will be harmed. And then the lady says, King, if there's a little pity in your heart for this man, my son, is there a little pity in your heart for Absalom? Won't you see it fit that Absalom comes back into this kingdom? Absalom's allowed to return. David yields to the force of an external element, and he's distracted from his purpose. Patriarchs and prophets said, Absalom's crowning act of hypocrisy was designed not only to blind the king, but to establish the confidence of the people and thus lead them on to rebellion against the king who had chosen. I believe Ellen White was speaking about Absalom when she wrote this. One event that happened. Patriarchs and prophets 719. Speaking of David, it says, but as he departed from God and yielded himself to the wicked one, he became for the time the agent of Satan. David tells Solomon, beware of the external forces that distract you from your purpose. Joab was able to secure the work of this woman and distract David from his purpose. This, this great king, this great decision maker in the Israelite kingdom was then for a moment rendered useless because of the work of a woman. Today, more than ever, the enemy is using external things to distract us from our purpose. Could be Dress could be friendships, could be entertainment, could be any number of things. You know what it could be for you. It could be finances. Incidentally, finances seem to be such a hot topic. And even that, friends, can distract us from our purpose. If we're so concerned about things that that might come, we're distracted from the people that we could be witnessing to. If you have any questions about this, I strongly recommend you go to Ed Wright's Not Ed Wright. Ed Reed's seminar tomorrow. He's got some of the best stuff I've seen. That was a side note. It's particularly interesting to me that Joab selects the use of a woman. A a, a quick Bible student would know that in the Bible, a woman represents the church. Could it be that in the end time the enemy will use the church to distract you from your purpose? Follow me through this lest you miss my point. I was traveling this, this summer quite a bit with my wife. We, uh, between GYC weddings and graduations, we spent a fair share of our time in airports. We uh, landed in Washington, D.C., and I remember it vividly because we were going to my cousin's graduation. My dad's secretary made the reservations for, for the rental car. We get down to the rental car area, and I remember it. Budget, no line. Alamo, no line. Avis, no line. Hertz, long line. What do you think we were in? Hertz. I couldn't believe it. I remember walking in there, looking around, thinking to myself, every person in this entire airport must be renting a car from Hertz. We waited, we waited, we waited, and finally we got to the front of the line and we got our car. The next weekend we were scheduled to be out in San Francisco. Armed with this knowledge of the lines, I made my reservations for the car. and, And I remember at San Francisco, you take a little trolley, the doors open, and I saw it. Avis, no line. Budget, no line. Alamo, no line. Dollar, no line. Hertz, gigantic line. What do you think I was with? Hertz. The website sucked me right in. I got in that line, and the whole time I'm thinking to myself, how on earth can everyone be in here wanting to get a car from Hertz? Hertz is a touch more expensive, expensive, too. It's a couple dollars a day more. So I'm standing in this line, and I'm honestly thinking, what are these people doing around me? I get to the front. The guy, the older gentleman, calls me to the front. He's, he, I hand him my ID. I hand him my credit card. He does his thing on the computer. He, he gets the packet ready. I sign. He hands me the packet, but then he doesn't let go. He gets real close to my ear, looks to the left and right to ensure that no one's listening. And he says, at Hertz, we like to take care of our taller brothers. As I drove out of the parking lot in a brand new SUV, upgraded at no charge, I knew why I was at Hertz. Brand loyalty. What can they do for me? Me as the consumer, what can they do for me? It's why Israel only flies Northwest Airlines. It's why Luke, not many Sabbaths go by why he doesn't eat a nice bowl of Fruity Pebbles. Brand loyalty. As I drove that trek from San Francisco all the way over to Weimar, a scary analogy of truth aligned in my mind. If I were the enemy, I thought to myself, I would attract people to church with a brand loyalty. Think of it. You'd walk into the church, pull open the the door, sit down in the pew and say, God, I'm here. What can you do for me this morning? The music, it it better please me or I'm out of here. If one person says something to me I don't like, I'll find another church. And the preacher, oh, don't get me started on the preacher. I do not want to be convicted today. I want to walk out of here feeling loved and in love with the same world I was when I walked in. If I were the enemy, I would attract people to church with a brand loyalty. God is calling for a generation of churched young people who go to worship a creator each Sabbath. They are there unselfishly and humbly worshiping their Savior, not an attitude of what's in it for me, but an attitude of what do you want from me this Sabbath. God is calling for a generation of churched people who are there to worship God. The questions then are asked, what kind of music would God want to hear? How would Jesus react to someone if they said something he didn't like? If Jesus was here as the pastor, how would he preach? God is calling for a generation of churched young people who go to worship God knowing that they're there for him and not themselves. God is calling for a generation to finish the work. A generation who realizes their true purpose. A generation who are bathed in Bible study and prayer. A generation with the strict focus of reaching a world in need. A generation who will let nothing stop them from fulfilling their purpose. Will you join me? This summer... I was at the ASI convention. I was there eating a, a meal, kind of minding my own business, sawing on a piece of broccoli when the person came to sit next to me. I was kind of, you know, just sawing through this piece of broccoli, eating it, and I looked, and then I, I went back to the broccoli, and then I looked again. Kind of one of those double-take moments. Jan Paulsen sat down next to me. And it's kind of one of those moments when you kind of look to make sure you don't have any food on your your shirt. You make sure that the tie is cinched up nice and in your your nice posture and everything. And instantly I thought of a question that I wanted to ask him. But I didn't want to ask him right away. I'd get there. I'd kind of warm him up to it. He didn't know what I was doing. I doubt So we're kind of, you know, having some small talk, and I, I told him, in my line of work, it's cool when I can get to the owner or a CFO. He told me in his line of work, it's cool when he enters a, a, a country and the president is, is able to meet with him. And other people came and joined, and so it was getting harder and harder to point my questions at him, but I finally got my opportunity. I said, Jan? I mean, let's be honest, I didn't say that. I said, Elder Paulson, what is the plan for young people in the church? He said, Justin, we're waiting for a generation who take ownership of the church. Justin, we're waiting for a generation who take ownership of the church. It wasn't a, a cookie cutter response. And, and I really wrestled with the question in my mind for a while. What does it look like? What does it look like if a generation takes ownership of the church? Let me give you a few notes that I've come up with. An owner doesn't give up. They're not afraid to get in there and get their hands dirty. An owner is not going to check in and check out to church. An owner is going to boldly proclaim a message to the world unashamed of the gospel. Do you want to learn how you can unashamedly take the, this gospel in this generation to a world in need? Do you want to understand that God can use you as a banker, a, a, an accountant, a nurse, whatever field you're in, today, where you're at, and when you, where you're at? Yes or no? You'll have to join us next year, unashamed in Kentucky. If God in his loving mercy comes back, we'll have it in the shadows of the tree of life. Wouldn't that be incredible? God is calling, I believe, for an ownership mentality. It's really, if you think about it, a paradigm shift of thinking about our relationship with the church. No longer can you sit back with your arms crossed and say, I don't really like that. I don't really appreciate what he's saying. You have to take ownership of it, kneel down on your knees, and ask God for help and guidance. Church is boring. Church is not spiritual enough. Get in there and fix it. No longer can you say, well, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like this. Get in there and fix it. God is calling for an ownership of the church. Jan Paulson wants it. God wants it. And it's the only way we can get this thing done. If we take ownership of the church. Get in there and fix it if it needs fixing. Remember that an owner always looks internally before looking externally. God's calling for a generation who take ownership of this church. Owners are so passionate about his or her product, a saved soul, that no force, internal or external, will stop them from spreading the message to the world. God is calling for a generation of Seventh-day Adventists who take ownership of the church, good and bad, and say, this is mine. Solomon, charged by David, went on to fulfill his purpose. In his life, he finished the work God gave him. He was able to complete that temple to do things that David himself couldn't do. God is calling for a generation of young people to do things that generations before us were unsuccessful to do. My appeal tonight is simple. In 1 Chronicles, God stood at a crossroads. Excuse me, God's people stood at a crossroads. In 1 Chronicles, God's people were there ready to bring on the next generation to do things to do that had the capacity and talent to do things that the generation before it couldn't do. I would submit to you tonight that we're at a crossroads in this earth's history. Tonight, December 17, 2008, God's people stand at a crossroads He's asking for a generation to get motivated, to get things figured out, and to finish the work. He's calling for God's movement of young people and old people, 2.0. Get on board or get out of the way. It's a movement already gaining momentum. So powerful and impactful that no human being can take credit for it. Bigger than any president of GYC, bigger than any executive committee, bigger than any board, bigger than anybody on this earth. A movement with God himself as the general. A movement of young people. It's springing up all over around the world and you've got to get on board or you've got to get out of the way. God's movement 2.0. I'm sick of these pretend movements in young people. We dress up. We come to GYC each year, we put on our nice clothes, cinch up the tie, we attend the meetings Bible in hand, we study our Bibles from Wednesday to Sunday, we fruitfully pray from Wednesday to Sunday, and we go home and we lose it all. We put on our nice attire the next GYC of the next year. God's calling for a generation that take it seriously day in and day out. GYC is not an annual convention. GYC is not a playtime with friends that you haven't seen in a while. GYC is not a place where you find a spouse. GYC is not a place where you come to eat good food. Usually. (laughs) Don't miss my point. (laughs) GYC is that soul you lead in your dorm room. GYC is what happens when you are alone with your thoughts. GYC is what happens in vespers and churches across the globe. GYC is taking risks, sharing your faith in the workplace, sharing your faith in the classroom, sharing your faith to people on the street. GYC is full-hearted service to God, not an annual convention. If you've come here tonight thinking that this is an annual convention, I urge you, search your heart because you're here for the wrong reason. If you've came here tonight just to, to mingle with people, just to kind of meet other people in Adventist circles, you've come here for the wrong reason tonight. I urge you, search your hearts while you are here. Friends, God wants to call a generation, but he cannot do it until we get serious. God wants to call a generation that says, you faithful ones, you're the ones that can finish the work, but he can't do it until we get serious. God wants to call a generation so bathed in prayer, so bathed in Bible study, that no person, no human being can distract them from that. God wants to call a generation so devoted to him that the battle of the north and the south doesn't affect him and souls are one for the kingdom. God is calling for a generation not distracted by external things, not distracted by dress, not distracted by friendship, not even distracted by church because they're there for the wrong reason, but humble servants of God that can finish the work. Will you join me in that effort? For the longest time, I've always thought about myself being in the past tense. I thought about, you know, wouldn't it be cool to to be one of those founders of the Adventist church? Think of that. To be there in that that room when people are praying on their knees and they come up with the idea to start the Seventh-day Adventist church led by God. I thought to myself, wouldn't it be cool to be there with David? To see this decisive leader in action. Wouldn't it be cool to to be there with Esther? To see her in this this kingdom where where she comes to the king and boldly proclaims a message to her. I have always thought, wouldn't it be cool to be there with Paul? to, To travel the east preaching from city to city with Paul. I've even thought this. Wouldn't it have been cool to be one of the pioneers, one of the founders of the generation of youth for Christ? Wouldn't that have been cool to be in that room as they sat together and prayed, Justin Kim, Israel Ramos, Andrea Oliver, and the rest of them, as they knelt down and prayed, thinking to themselves, God, should we do this or not? But God has saved us for something better. God has saved us for the best part of all. God has saved us to finish the work and usher in his second coming. Never has there been a more exciting time to be alive. Never has there been a more exciting time to be a young person. Never has there been a more exciting time to be involved in God's work. The appeal is simple. The angel of the Lord is writing down the history of this earth. She's getting ready to pen out Revelation, the best part, the last book of earth's history. The pen is ready. The pages in front of her are blank, and she's going to start writing. And I ask you, what will she write about this generation? What will she write about the generation of youth for Christ? What will she write about you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we just bow our heads in this humble moment. I believe honestly that you've charged us tonight that you've given us this great purpose of finishing the work. Never, Lord, has there been a more exciting for us, exciting time for us to be alive. Never has there been a more exciting time for you to use God's young people. And tonight, Lord, we're we're bowed humbly before you. We're young people who are weak, and underqualified. But we understand, Lord, that if we're teamed up with you, we are magnificent and overqualified. Lord, we ask that you come into our lives. That you make us that generation that's ready to finish the work. Lord, we're sick of talking about it. We're sick of coming up to to conference after conference. We want to be the generation that ushers in your second coming. We're here to tell you we're ready to be owners of this. We're ready to take this to the next level, but we can only do it with your guidance and your assistance. Lord, thank you for being a God that we can come before and ask anything of. Give us a blessed weekend now as you show us your true purpose. I pray all these things in your precious name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.